Hear now a reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 24 through 31. Thomas, the one called Didymus, one of the twelve, wasn't with the disciples when Jesus came. The other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he replied, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my finger in the wounds left by the nails, and put my hand into his side, I won't believe. After eight days, his disciples were again in a house, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus entered and stood among them. He said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put your hand into my side. No more disbelief. Believe. Thomas responded to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Jesus replied, do you believe because you see me? Happy are those who don't see and yet believe. Then Jesus did many other miraculous signs in his disciples' presence, signs that aren't recorded in this scroll. But these things are written so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, God's Son, and that believing you will have life in his name. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, may the words of our mouths, may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This passage of scripture is one of the only passages where we hear about Thomas, one of the disciples. And as a result of this passage of scripture, Thomas has acquired a nickname over the years. Do you know what that nickname is? Doubting Thomas. That's kind of a terrible nickname. You don't want to be known throughout your life as the one who doubted, right? And yet that seems to be the nickname that has stuck with Thomas through the years. And perhaps Thomas did doubt but I don't know if that's really the best nickname for Thomas. I wonder if we thought about Thomas as being the one desperately seeking certainty. Or fully human Thomas. These seem to be perhaps fairer <laughs> nicknames for him. Nicknames that maybe speak to this text and to this encounter with Thomas. Let's kind of review what is happening in John chapter 20. Earlier in the chapter, Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb while it was still dark, before dawn. And she goes to the tomb and she sees that the stone has been rolled away. And so she runs from the tomb to go tell the disciples that the stone has been rolled away. And so Peter, and in John's gospel, it tells us Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. We assume John, but that was just a polite way for John to maybe not name himself, but also to say, yeah, Jesus loved me. 
Anyway, Peter and John, they kind of race each other back to the tomb to see for themselves. John looks in, and the passage tells us that Peter, like, barges on in uh, to the tomb to see that the, the cloths were, that had wrapped Jesus' body were neatly folded. Um, kind of the one that was covering his face was at one place, and then the rest of the, the wrappings were, were folded up and in a different place. And so sure enough, they see that, yep, the stone was rolled away and, and Jesus' body is gone. We believe that. But we don't believe yet that Jesus has been raised from the dead, that Jesus is alive. They, they don't understand that yet. And so Peter and John, they leave the tomb, but Mary stays behind. Mary's weeping, she's grieving. And she encounters uh, two angels, two divine messengers who ask her why she's weeping. And so she tells them, they've taken my Lord and I don't know where they've put him. And then a man appears. And Mary thinks it's the gardener. And so she asks him, hey, have you seen um, my Lord? His body was here and it's, it's gone. Do you know where they took it? I want to go and I will get his body and I will put it back where it belongs. I will take care of it. If only you will tell me where it is. The gardener knows her name. and says, Mary. And in that moment, she sees that the gardener is not a gardener. He's not a stranger to her, but it's in fact Jesus, the risen Lord. So she rejoices, my Lord, my God, you're alive. And he tells her to go back and to tell the disciples what she has seen, what she has experienced. And so she does. Later that same day, the disciples are gathered in a room behind closed doors. And Jesus appears to them. But what's interesting is that Thomas isn't there. He's not in the room uh, where, when Jesus appeared to the disciples. And the scripture, it doesn't tell us where Thomas is, why he's not in the room with them. Perhaps Thomas was grieving the death of his friend. Perhaps he's mourning the loss of his uh, kind of expected future life of ministry with Jesus. He thought his life was heading in one direction, and now with the death of Jesus, suddenly he doesn't know um, what is happening in his life, where to go to next. Perhaps his grief and sorrow have caused Thomas to go off on his own, uh, to process his emotions, uh, to think. Maybe Thomas is also afraid of the Jewish and Roman authorities. He fears for his own life and for that of his family. He doesn't want to, to be crucified like Jesus. Maybe Thomas has abandoned his friends out of fear. But I have to wonder, what if Thomas was running an errand for the group of disciples? What if it was Thomas's turn to go pick up dinner? or to go buy the groceries. I imagine that Thomas would be quite aggravated if Jesus appeared to the other disciples and left before Thomas had a chance to make it back into the room. Thomas might think, it's not fair. The other disciples got to see Jesus, and I did not. Perhaps Thomas's pride is wounded, and his feelings are hurt. 
So when his friends tell him, we've seen the risen Lord, Thomas says, "Mm mm-mm, I don't believe it. Until I see it for myself, I'm not going to believe it. You and I often find ourselves a lot like Thomas. We don't believe until we see it. Until we have the proof right before our eyes, tangible in our hands. Until we have experienced it for ourselves, we can't believe it. We can't believe that other people's experiences could somehow be different from our own. Sometimes we question. We doubt. We desperately seek certainty. And in all of those moments, we are fully human. This passage with Thomas, I think, is an invitation to understand that we all want certainty in our lives. We have ideas and expectations of the direction our lives are headed. We have ideas of what our life should look like. But life is not certain, is it? Life is not always guaranteed. As much as we try to tell ourselves that we're in control, we are not in control. Sometimes life is not fair. We celebrate that life is precious, and yet we reject the idea that life is precarious. We try to hide this reality about life, this both and, this preciousness and this precariousness. We try to hide it from ourselves. We try to hide it from our children because it's hard. We don't want to grapple with the idea that, try as hard as we might, we might not get what we want out of life. That bad things may still happen to us. That life is not fair, no matter how much we long for it to be. So I wonder if this life of faith, the life of following Jesus, is all about learning how to love and how to trust when nothing is certain or guaranteed. Dorothy Day, she talks about learning to live inside of uncertainty without always trying to get over our uncertainty. How do we learn to live in this precariousness? So when Jesus meets Thomas in that upper room, he he appears to the disciples eight days after that first encounter with those disciples. Eight days Thomas had to sit and wait and wonder if he was ever going to get to see Jesus. Jesus shows up to Thomas and to the other disciples, 
And Jesus pulls Thomas aside and shows him his wounds so that Thomas can see for himself. And Jesus instructs him to believe. And Thomas responds with, my Lord and my God, yes, I do believe. And then Jesus says, blessed are those who believe yet do not see. So this is a little bit of a rebuke of Thomas. Thomas who didn't trust, who perhaps didn't rely because he had not seen. He had trouble trusting when things were uncertain. Jesus is saying, yeah, life is uncertain. Blessed are those who continue to trust. Blessed are those who continue to rely upon me, even when they cannot see, even when life is uncertain, even in the middle of life's precariousness. Friends, I, ha- I wonder, what if, if, if Jesus is calling us, you and me, in the middle of this pandemic, to believe and to trust in Jesus, even when we cannot see? What if this pandemic moment is an opportunity for us uh, to really dig in to trusting Jesus, even when we do not know the next time we will be able to gather together in this sanctuary for worship? What if this moment is calling us to love one another, to trust one another, even when we're distant from each other, when we can't be in the same room together? Blessed are those who believe, yet do not see. Amen. I'd like for you to try to imagine what the disciples must have been thinking and feeling that day when Jesus appeared to them in that locked room. A lot had happened in recent days, but before that even, for three years, they had followed Jesus. They had spent every day and night by his side, and it seemed as though uh, he was leading them somewhere. Well, he was, but I don't think to the place that they expected. A couple of weeks ago, we celebrated Palm Sunday. Imagine what it was like being the disciples as this parade is happening. Jesus is entering Jerusalem, and people are shouting, Hosanna! What must they have been thinking and feeling about where things were heading, that finally Jesus was going to be acknowledged for who they knew he was. Maybe he would even get to sit on the throne. Big things were about to happen. Then there was that Thursday night, that night that they celebrated the Passover. They were in Jerusalem for the Passover. But then Jesus started saying the strangest things. He he said, this is my body given for you, talking about the Passover bread. He said, this is my blood shed for you, talking about the the wine of the Passover. No one had ever said anything like that before. 
He said one of them was about to betray him. That can't have been what they were expecting. And then came Jesus' arrest that night. The next morning, Jesus now is nailed to a cross. And then by Friday afternoon, Jesus was dead. Put yourself in their shoes. What were they thinking? What were they feeling? Imagine the fear. Imagine the confusion. Imagine the disappointment. Imagine the grief and the agony. Now we don't know what was going on with the disciples as much of this was happening. It just simply says that when Jesus was arrested that they they scattered. They scattered. They all went off to hiding places. As Jesus was nailed to the cross, maybe John was there, according to John's gospel, but the others weren't there. The women were there. Mary was there. But the disciples were, they were hiding. That afternoon when Jesus died, they weren't there. They were, they were hiding. When Joseph of Arimathea went and made arrangements for Jesus to be placed in a tomb, when the women followed to see where Jesus would be laid, the other disciples weren't there. They were hiding. We can pretty much assume that on Holy Saturday, they were hiding. Uh, On Easter morning, when the women went to the tomb and discovered Jesus wasn't there, The disciples were hiding. They had to go get Peter and John to come and see for themselves. And later, when Jesus appeared to them that afternoon, they were hiding. Why were they hiding? I think they were afraid. Before they knew Jesus had risen from the dead, they they must have been afraid of the, the Jewish leaders and the Romans, that maybe they wanted to kill them too. And maybe those fears lingered. But I suspect even after seeing Jesus resurrected here in this story we read today, eight days later, they're still in hiding behind locked doors, uncertain what to do next. They know Jesus has been raised from the dead, and yet they seem to not know what the right next thing should be. Now, now, don't get me wrong. I'm not judging them. I hide too sometimes. When I feel threatened, when I feel afraid, I hide. I hide from what it is that's making me feel insecure. And and the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus must have been terrible for those who had committed their entire lives to Jesus. What, What a devastating blow to their hopes and dreams. Now what were they going to do? Now where where would they turn? What what if their lives were in danger? I suspect even after encountering the risen Jesus, they still weren't certain what the future held for them. Fear, confusion, uncertainty, doubt, hiding behind locked doors, doors, afraid of what was outside, unsure of the future. Does any of that sound familiar? Can you relate to any of that? 
And then all of a sudden, unexpectedly, even though they're locked into this, this hiding place, Jesus appears to them, and the first thing he says is, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Now, no doubt, the, the important part of this passage is, is the interaction between Jesus and Thomas confronting his doubts. He had said, you know, I'm not going to believe he's resurrected till I stick my fingers in his, in his side, until I stick my fingers into the hole in his hands. That, that undeniably is the thrust of this passage. But I just want to focus on this phrase for just a moment. Peace be with you. I so strongly suspect they were feeling anything and everything but peace. But peace was what they needed. They, they desperately needed peace. And Jesus was the only one who could provide it. Peace be with you. The word Jesus probably spoke was the Hebrew word shalom. Jesus spoke Aramaic, uh, but it's very similar. The word shalom is probably a word you've heard before. In, in the New Testament, which was written in Greek, the word is erene, peace. Now it just seems like kind of a greeting, peace be with you. We say that here at church, but, but it was packed with meaning. When words were spoken in biblical times, they were spoken as as, as blessing often. Jesus is, is wishing peace for them. And the word shalom or arene means more than just simply an absence of conflict. We, we think of that as, as poor, peace is the opposite, opposite of war, right? Uh, that peace is what we need when there's conflict between me and you or my group and your group or my nation and your nation. But the word shalom is much deeper than that. It does include this, these external conflicts, but it also includes internal conflicts. It also includes the, the totality of our well-being, our health, our wholeness, our wellness, not just mine, but, but yours, everyone's. That's, that's the wish of shalom, a world that is made right and whole a world at peace. Jesus says, peace be with you. And he speaks it to his disciples who are scared and confused and doubting, desperately in need of reassurance. He says to them, everything is going to be okay. I just rose from the grave. I just defeated death. Be at peace. Everything's going to be fine. There is a saint in the Catholic Church whose name is Julian of Norwich. She lived in the 14th century and wrote a work called The Revelations of Divine Love. In that book, she, she has a lengthy portion where she, she complains to God about the evil and suffering in the world. And God responds to her that, that suffering in this life is inevitable. It's just part of human experience. But then God speaks to Julian saying, all shall be well. 
and all shall be well. And all manner of things shall be well. Ultimately, all shall be well. As you and I, at this very moment, perhaps, are sitting in our homes, maybe behind locked doors, maybe afraid and uncertain, filled with doubts. I wonder if some of you need to hear that simple greeting from the risen Christ today. Peace. Shalom. Peace be with you. All shall be well. All shall be well. All manner of things shall be well. I've conquered the grave. I've defeated death. I've got this. Everything's going to be okay. I wonder this morning, maybe if you're sitting next to someone in your home watching this that needs to hear a word of peace. So I just thought maybe right in this very moment, if you're watching with someone there at home, just turn to them and just simply say, Peace be with you. Just wish them peace. Speak peace into their life, knowing that, that that's a powerful blessing. Peace be with you. Or maybe if you're alone, or maybe if there's someone else who's come to mind, just pick up your phone right now and text them or email them. Jesus has this. Peace be with you. Everything's going to be okay.